Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Hey, you might remember me from a podcast I did called Exit Scam. I'm here with my co-host, Max Linsky. He did a podcast called 70 Over 70. And of course, Evan Ratliff, by his book, The Mastermind, it's a masterpiece. Hello. Hey, you guys. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Aaron, thank you for that kind introduction. Well, I'm feeling good because, um, well... Last week, uh, we announced that we would be shutting down uh, the article recommendation service that we've been running for over a decade at longform.org. The outpouring of very sincere gratitude and and true disappointment uh, on behalf of of all of the people who who enjoyed it uh, has been really uh, validating. So thanks to everyone who's sent a nice message to us. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of them and... uh... It really did mean a lot. I, I feel like this probably just says more about my psychology than anything else, but I I really thought the only options were, um, one, people would be mad, or two, no one would care. And uh, it was not that thing. People seem to have appreciated the website that we did for almost 12 years, and uh, it really meant a lot. All those notes really, really meant a lot. People were so sad that I almost was sad that we were shutting it down and, and was like, hey, Max, let's not shut it down. But that's I'm not I'm not saying that. That's 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 not the message from this. Don't don't, don't tease the people like that. I won't, I won't, I won't. Uh, but you should, what you should do is uh, tease this interview. Who'd you talk to this week? I talked to Sarah Marshall. She is the host of the podcast You're Wrong About, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, for people who haven't listened, You're Wrong About takes an event from the past often from the 1990s or millennium era, which is, of course, my favorite era, and revisits it both as a form of media criticism and a form of what really happened. And it's a lot funnier than that sounds and a really interesting way to approach uh, telling stories from the past. Um, So I was excited to talk to Sarah Marshall. She's also the host of You Are Good and has written a bunch for The Believer. Uh, This was a really uh, great interview. Uh, Thanks to her for doing it. Well, you're not alone in uh, listening to You're Wrong About. I feel like it is a uh, it is a significant pandemic hit, that podcast. Yes, 
they had a prolific pandemic too. Like these shows require significantly more efforts than the show you're listening to right now. And they've put out dozens of them uh, during the pandemic uh, for a while with her co-host, uh, Michael Hobbs, who has now left the show. And now she's doing it with um, like rotating guest hosts. I'm excited about this one. Me too. And I'm excited that we produce this show in partnership with Vox. And now here's Aaron with Sarah Marshall. Welcome, Sarah Marshall. Hello. Thank you for having me. So you are the host of uh, You're Wrong About. So for people who, uh, I don't know, like a elevator pitch, what, how do you describe the show to people? My elevator pitch is that You're Wrong About is a show about misremembered history and specifically stories that we remember one way, even if factually they clearly happen another way. And why is it that what we misremember is often false, which the show, I started it with Michael Hobbs in May of 2018. And I feel like at the time that was, you had to do a little bit more of a spiel for that than today, where it's just like, yeah, no one believes anything that's really happening. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't think the show is actually all about the 90s, but it ha- it has like a certain like kinship with some of those like VH1. Totally. Remember this <laughs> kind of sh- like those would be a good thing to mine for episode subjects. Oh, I have done that. Like just the other day, I was like, I need to think of something from the 90s that I want to talk about. Like who was a big tabloid story in the 90s? And I guess went through lists of topics from episodes of I Love the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) So when did your interest in sort of um, revisiting the past through the media of the past start? Hmm. I think for me, it really started with Tanya Harding. I was obsessed with Tanya Harding starting, I'm thinking actually today about 2010, because I realized that was when Longform the website started. And that was also the year that I started my MFA in fiction. And at the time, the first things I published were like kind of humorous listicles on the hairpin. Remember listicles? (laughs) The internet used to be like mainly listicle based, I feel like. There was a there was a belief at one time on the internet that a skilled listicle writer would uh, would would never uh, lack for work. <laughs> and that uh, in fact it might be the dominant format of the 21st century. Yeah, it was like Deadwood at that time, right? So I like arrived on the internet with my listicles and in, in a bindle and the first thing I ever published was a list of actual Puritan baby names on the hairpin. So as I was doing my MFA and starting to publish, I partly because it had become my scary vocation to write fiction, I started writing more nonfiction. So like, take me inside the mind of a person who starts an MFA in in fiction and sort of starts veering away. Like, what was your format of choice um, in the fiction world? Were you a short story writer? Were you working on a novel? I did short stories because I feel like at least at the time that was really what MFAs and fiction tended to be oriented toward. I imagine that's probably still the case because you can you can teach a short story and then I think teaching the novel is just messier and you can't do it in a semester. You can't master the short story in a semester, obviously, but you can you can do you can do one. You can make one and then you can be like, okay, here's where this went wrong. (laughs) It's like building a tiny boat. But yeah, I think I'm also a contrary person, and I'm sure that it's just natural that anytime something becomes your job, you're like, I don't want to do that. I want to do 
this other thing. And 2010 was a time when Portlandia was like extremely culturally relevant. And I was, I was doing an MFA at Portland State University, which had just started doing MFAs, which I really recommend if you're going to do an MFA and if it makes sense financially for you, do it at a place where there's very little prestige because no one's heard of it. And it's only existed for nine months because people will be less competitive and, and gross, at least in my experience. I hope that that's the outcome generally. And suddenly I had this big cohort of friends who were mostly from far-flung parts of the country and who were experiencing my hometown for the first time. And I, in trying to think about like, what is Portland to me? What is old Portland to me? Tanya Harding came up a lot. And then I was like, you know, I don't really know her story. I know that I grew up seeing her played by Melanie Hutzel on Saturday Night Live. Um, and I love Melanie, but there have to be limitations <laughs> to the informative nature of that portrayal. And then I just became completely fascinated by her story. And then it, at about the same time, I also started doing a master's in literature at the same time. So kind of bouncing between trying to write short stories and learning about possessed Puritan servant girls and then writing stories about girls being possessed and sort of marrying those things to each other. But yeah, and so I became fascinated by Tanya Harding and I was like, oh my God, I've unearthed this beautiful dinosaur skeleton of truth, which is that this woman became known as like history's greatest monster in the mid nineties and has been so intensely reviled. And this was in 2010, which I think was before there were some cultural shifts, which kind of naturally led us to having a culture that was more receptive to seeing the trauma in that story. But I was like, this is the ultimate scoop. It's that we were horrible for no reason. <laughs> and I kind of set about writing something that would express that. And that was the first large scale piece of fiction that I ever wrote uh, in a non academic context and then published. What was like the process of like for the first time taking a ton of research and trying to crush it into something that fit in a believer story? It was intense. I think one of the, the reasons that I was so happy to do this for the believer and I think was why I kind of held out until I was writing for, for them or, or, you know, someplace like them was that that was a 10,000 word piece. And that was a place where I was able to write a 10,000 word piece, which I think, um, you know, in an attention economy, I think any, any time people are invested in a piece of writing that takes them on a journey that necessarily they have to spend a significant amount of time and effort on. I'm always happy when that happens and when there are outlets for that, because I think that's one of those things where like the time you spend getting through the narrative has to change you. Like there actually has to be a journey. I have to wear you down. <laughs> um, and so I feel like thinking about what it was like to write that article. It was the summer after I finished my MFA and I was living with my parents. And so I sat at my desk looking at the main road going past their house where like, and they live around a bunch of truck farms. So like occasionally the potato truck would go by. <laughs> and so that summer I first wrote a romance novel 
because I had always meant to write a romance novel and I was like, okay, I I'm giving myself the summer to write before I start adjuncting in the fall. So yeah, I wasn't teaching. I had this little gift of time and I was like, I'm going to write a romance novel. And I did. And it was okay. I tried to get it published. Nobody wanted it. Um, but that was the first time I had written something book size that I actually finished. And I recommend try writing a romance novel. It's fun. And then it was like, I think I was able to contemplate doing a Tanya Harding piece. And I remember that the first draft was 30,000 words that I then was able to cut down <laughs> to 10. And that tends to be how I write. I'll like publish something that's very long that in first draft form was two times or three times that length. And I guess I don't know a better way to eliminate what doesn't need to be in there. Um, I just remember being totally immersed in it. I remember I would get up every morning and kind of have coffee and read something. And then I would just go straight into it and just use all my usable energy for the day. And I did that for three weeks. And I don't, I don't know if I would have been able to do that if I hadn't had that gift of time and extended concentration. And then once you've done it once, I think it's, it's easier to, you know, to then try and do that form another time and then a third time. But yeah, it was, it was great though. I really missed that. That was just like, I just ate, slept and breathed Tanya. (laughs) So you did, um, you did that piece for the believer and you also did a piece on uh, Ted Bundy that is uh, similarly long. Yeah. And when I reread them, I was like, oh, these are a dry run for you're wrong about. (laughs) These are like, these both would be good you're wrong about topics. Mm -hmm. And they um, both are like heavily, heavily researched, like going deep, deep into the sort of media uh, construction of a narrative. Mm -hmm. So the first moment that I was like, oh, this is interesting. I think this would play out differently in a discussion than it does on the page Mm -hmm. was the question of whether Tanya Harding knew about this attack that her uh, ex-husband was had plotted on on Nancy Kerrigan. And it's sort of an unknowable thing on a certain level. Like um, it's possible that like Tanya Harding and uh, Jeff Galuli are the only people who, who know the truth Mm -hmm. about it. Um, But you sort of make the case for like, Hey, Actually, there's like some pretty strong evidence here that she did not know about this attack in advance. Um, And I guess I'm curious, like when you come to like when you're trying to sort of reorder the historical narrative and then you come to a unknowable thing like that, how how do you deal with that in the way you construct these these uh, stories? I mean, I think often when there is an imponderable like that, we we tend to assume that a person acted in a way that fits with the way we already see them generally. And so in that case, she's the villain in the story. So therefore she must have done this villainous thing. And why is she a villain? Because we believe she did the thing and it just becomes this loop. And it's funny because actually since that piece coming out, there have been, you know, a couple of things that where she has kind of implicated herself more. Like she said, you know, a few years ago that she had heard, I think her husband talking on the phone about taking out a skater and it's like, okay, well, you know, at that point, but then it's like, it becomes something where it's like almost like racketeering, like how implicated are you if you're aware of a plot moving forward, but you don't 
uh, go to the authorities? How much is it relevant that you are potentially afraid of the person who's making this plan? Uh, especially in this case, if you have also alleged that he's been extremely abusive to you. And so I feel like in that piece, I was <laughs> seeing myself as Tanya Harding's like self-appointed lawyer in the public eye and was saying, you know, here's, here's what we assume her involvement to have been. And the information we have also supports this scenario. And there's also, you know, material involved that makes it make sense for her to have not come forward in various circumstances. And then also personally, you know, when people are like, yeah, but did she do it? Do you think she's guilty? I'm just like, you know, like the worst case scenario, she did something that she never deserved this degree of punishment for. Like the the degree of investment that there is even space for her to have had in a plot that seems very obviously driven and planned by her husband and one of his friends and then his friends. <laughs> there just isn't a lot of space for her to have had much agency in this, even in the, the scenario where you give her the most she can possibly have. Um, and I guess I feel like my job is also to to get you to start from a point of feeling some kind of attachment to her and recognition of the fact that she's more like you than she's different from you. Okay. That perfectly segues into the second one I wanted to talk about. So yeah. towards the end of your Ted Bundy piece, uh, there's like a, like a hard right turn. I actually can literally remember the moment I was reading this hmm. in the believer. Cause I was kind of like, Oh no, <laughs> oh, Sarah, don't at first I was like, don't do it. You were like, I empathize with Ted. Bundy. <laughs> Right? There's like a, a hard turn where you start uh, addressing sort of Ted Bundy directly. Yeah. It was interesting because when I read it, I was like, well, this is this is bold. Mm. Like This is, you know, and then after rereading it as a you're wrong about listener, hmm. I was reading it in your voice as if you would read it on the show. And I was like, oh, this is perfectly natural. Sarah <laughs> always does something empathetic. To, to take the air out of the true crime narrative. That's like a, that's a, that, that's a classic one. So I guess I'm curious, like that sort of breaking of the fourth wall and I guess the invocation of, of like personal empathy, what, like what, what role does that play? And, and, and how do you think about like empathy for the, the subject you will never meet? Hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I think, um, I was just thinking about this with regards to Tammy Faye Baker, because we're re-releasing the Tammy Faye Baker and Jessica Hahn, you're wrong about episode to pair up with the, the new movie, the eyes of Tammy Faye. And I was thinking about how I think I identify with Tammy Faye Baker because she was someone whose job it was to publicly emote and then to offer people some kind of, a way into uh, feeling loved or loving or, you know, her, she was so big on the idea of an unconditionally loving God and an unconditionally loving Jesus. And, you know, just the concept of Jesus, the merciful. And I think kind of tried to be a human vessel for that idea. And I feel like podcasts are like televangelism and that you have a lot of time that you spend with your, uh, your audience. And I was, I was listening to that Tammy Faye episode also, which is about Tammy Faye Baker. 
and Jessica Hahn and the details of the sexual assault that she alleged uh, Jim Baker committed and also one of his uh, basically fixers. And I was listening to it, you know, kind of at a several year remove from when I made it thinking like, I think this episode is persuasive partly because I'm getting progressively worked up and you can hear that. And so I think there's something about, there's something about podcasts and audio generally that I love because if you are trying to tell someone a story and trying to say, you know, here's how I feel about this person and here's what I think about what the facts seem to reveal to me, then people can hear how that affects you, which is, you can do that in writing, but in in different ways and you don't access the limbic system as directly as through sound. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Those moments where, like, sort of real emotion comes through seem like a great thing to have happen if it has happened. But I imagine that like summoning the emotion that you felt while you were reading someone's autobiography 
uh, six days later with another person on a Zoom call is not always like uh, a one to one kind of thing. So, you know, what is it like when you when you have to sort of both experience the research and then emote that to the microphone uh, with another person there? Yeah, like sometimes the energy isn't there and then you can't do it. But I think I it is I feel like I'm able to be in the right state for being able to kind of, you know, I mean, I do a lot of reading aloud when I'm presenting to somebody. Um, and I think that's one of the ways that I kind of get myself into the headspace um, because there's something very intimate about reading someone else's uh, testimony in some way about what they believe or what they're talking about having experienced. And then I'm usually able to tell if I'm not receptive in the right way. And sometimes you realize a little bit late and you have to deal with it. But yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's, 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 uh, and yet it's also (laughs) in many ways easier than writing because I think partly for the reason that, you know, the way I do it, I starting the show was always in conversation with Mike. And then since he departed in October. I am always in conversation with somebody else. I've never done it as a monologue type thing. I might someday, but I don't, that doesn't do for me what it does to be able to, you know, I, I mean, I think like the show also came out of something that I noticed when I was trying to write these pieces and noticing what my process was for them, which was that while I was kind of in the process for a long piece of writing, I would find myself telling the story two different people. And when I taught writing, I would actually tell my students to do this. If they were trying to write an essay, trying to tell a narrative and get from A to B to C to D, to tell the story to people who they knew, to kind of hear what they put in, what they emphasize, what they didn't bother to mention. And just to kind of, you know, each time you tell it, I think you figure it out a little bit more. And so I think doing a podcast that always involves someone explaining something to someone else is taking that from that part of the process of figuring something out where you have to take something that you've just learned and then see how someone responds to that, especially somebody that you respect. As I understood when you and Michael started the show, you were not like friendly with each other. Like you had, didn't have some deep existing relationship. (laughs) Yeah. What, what is it like building up that, that two way rapport with another person. Yeah. Um, You've done it both with a person you didn't know over a long period of time. And you also do it with like guests who you only have one shot to get into that chemistry pretty quickly with. Uh, What have you learned about that? It's been really interesting. I mean, I think when Mike and I first started making the show, we were friendly and that's why he asked me if I wanted to do this project with him, but we weren't friends because we hadn't, we had talked maybe twice ever we had emailed a little bit I had read his work he had read my work we both really admired each other and so we had I think this initial connection of mutual esteem and being excited to be part of a project that the other person was doing which I think is a really good starting place but then yeah I think what's so funny about the show is that the arc of those episodes is you can hear us getting comfortable with each other and developing that bond and that intimacy that came, you know, through those conversations in the order that we had them, because they're, I think the thing about, 
the things that we've talked about on there is that I don't yeah this this holds again to what I love about doing a show that makes me feel like I'm doing the parts I loved about grad school which is that you can get really passionate about something and research it a bunch and then have someone to talk to about it and you really you get to know people that way and you get you kind of show your heart to somebody by showing them what you care about and what you're putting your time into and what things infuriate you. And so I think there was the bond really came from just from the conversations that we were having as we were making the show. And then of course we, you know, we got together. We, I met him the first time this summer after we started doing it. So like five months into working together, which is also very funny. (laughs) Um, we performed together live at XOXO 2019, you know, so we got the, the meat space followed from that. But I think that the, I think maybe some of the, the dynamism of the show came from the fact that you were kind of hearing two people become uh, close to each other in real time. And then, and then with guests, like that's, I'm excited to kind of be learning how that goes now and what, I want to do within that because I have, you know, this system now of rotating guests where someone will explain something to me and then I'll explain something to them uh, after they first visit. And then, you know, having people repeat and kind of (laughs) developing, I think, routine guests who have beats is something that makes sense to me right now, because then you're not, uh, you have kind of an established dynamic, which I do think is important. I think that one of the main things that the show offers people, which I kind of noticed people mentioning early on and have found important to focus on is that you're hearing two people who are really having a good time talking to each other. In terms of your research process. So let's say you're on the presenting end. Uh, um, like what's your, what's your research diet like? And, and in addition to that, in thinking about an episode, like what do you need to have enough to do a whole one of these episodes? Yeah. Like I feel like um, there being a like book, like a contemporaneous book is like a, a good ingredient uh, usually. Yeah. Like um, it is for me. It needs like someone to have gone in hard at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I mean, so what's an example? I'm preparing an episode on um, Bambi Bambenek which I believe is how you say her name. And if I'm wrong, I will find out soon. Um, And I haven't started researching that yet. But so my first move is going to be, you know, yeah, what are the contemporary books of the time? What are the true crime bestsellers? Did she write a memoir? Because that tells you, it's funny, I go first to these media that are purporting to be factual and generally are trying to be, but are also showing you what was the dominant media narrative of the time, which is kind of the key thing. And then, you know, whatever I can find on YouTube, looking on Google Scholar, newspaper articles of the time, really trying to do, (laughs) God, there's this line in a New Yorker article about, I think it was about Ian Frazier, about how apparently he had eaten like the things a salmon eats to know what it's like to be a salmon. <laughs> and th- that's what I always think of 
that could be completely wrong, by the way, but it's a nice image, isn't it? And just try and consume what were people living through this moment, consuming about it and what, and what was their worldview and what were they thinking about and what were they stressed about? And like, what is maybe influencing the way that they're coming to this story? And then looking at what has come out since kind of starting out with immersion in the moment and then going to, you know, what has emerged um, since this first unfolded and, and trying to find footage of people too, because I think that really, I, I just, yeah, I, I like to, to kind of be immersed in, in what people are like as much as possible too. But yeah, a lot, a lot of out of print paperbacks. I would say like a lot of the things that, that you're interested in are on the periphery of crime or a crime. Yeah. Uh, they're things that there could have been a true crime paperback written about. They're crimey. Um, and you seem, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're crime adjacent. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times what you'll do is take the true crime question, which in the case of Tanya Harding would be like, did she know about it or not? Mm-hmm. And say like, well, like, let's like, let's look at that question a little bit here. Like, She's in like a like extremely abusive relationship. Maybe the question isn't whether she knew, but like there are other questions sort of nested within that. Right. Um, I'm curious, like sort of what your relationship to the the true crime genre is. Um, there's been like a lot of like I feel like there's a lot of like finger wagging now in the podcast world about like the ethics of true crime. And it's hard for me because I'm like, well, I just like it. I'm sorry. Like, I, right. I, I, I didn't, I didn't ask to be born this way, but I enjoy true crime narratives. Um, where are you at with true crime? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm where you are, which is like, I like it. And also I like G fuel and I'm not going to say that G fuel is like great for me or anything. And I think that's where I'm at with true crime. I think that it it's such a big genre. With- wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what G fuel is. It's it's gamer fuel. So it's like this um it's just very caffeinated. Okay. It's like the premise is that it's no jitters caffeination because you're like an elite gamer and so you can't get jitters. And so I drink it when I want to clean my house. Um <laughs> There's no jitters? <laughs> I don't know. That's what they say. I you know, I haven't attached myself to a jitterometer after drinking it. I don't know. But my point is like I like it. And I, I think true crime is like it's such a capacious genre and there's true crime that I think is deeply illuminating and important and necessary. It, like it contains like some of the most meaningful, important journalism that is out there, like anything Pam Koloff writes, for example, you know, and then there's like the paperbacks in the early nineties that somebody had to like swoop into a small town where somebody had killed her kids, research for two weeks, write for two weeks, edit for two weeks, you know, and then it would hit the shelves and make as much money as possible. And that's also within the genre. And like, that's valuable to me as a self-appointed historian of the 20th century or the time when I was a child specifically, because that tells you like, what were people ready to believe? And I, <laughs> I had this thought about the Coen brothers recently that like the moment in almost famous when one of the band-aids it's probably Penny is explaining kind of why I have this lifestyle. She's like, famous people are just more interesting. And I think the Coen brothers are like, criminals are just more interesting and I think that kind of when something becomes criminal is often when human behavior gets extreme in a way that the 
the ultimately comforting but unproductive approach is to say like, well, that person was pure evil. End of book, read another one. And if you kind of look at that and think about it, you can connect the part of the spectrum of humanity that you're on potentially with someone who's done something that can, I think in my case, often makes me thankful for where I ended up as the kind of person I am who like has struggles in many ways, but who has never done something that um, I have to regret for the rest of my life that takes away somebody else's ability to live. Which is a weird way to say murder, but... <laughs> For anyone listening, Sarah is saying that she did not kill anyone. I did not. Yes. On the record. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of these questions are about like being good, like being a good person, being ethical. Yeah. And those are questions I did not actually think about very much in my 20s at all. And I think we're in an era now that is a lot more interested in ethics and what it means to be good. And mm-hmm. it weirdly butts up against what you just said, which is that like being really good is not interesting. There are like people who lived like, like if you did something good and changed the world, mm-hmm. maybe that's. Yeah. Jonas Salk is interesting. <laughs> I would read a book about him. Right. But if I had a choice, <laughs> listen, if I checked into a hotel and they were like, there's a Jonas Salk biography or there's a book about the escape from Alcatraz. Like, which am I choosing? Exactly. And that weirdly gets conflated with the audience where I think it can be almost suspect to be really interested in bad people now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I really like about your show is that I think you are really open with like thinking about like good and bad and bad people and and how people are like pretty complicated Mm -hmm. in it. And I'm curious, like, are those realizations you're having in like real time when you're doing the show? Like when, when do you decide what, what you think about something? I noticed this a lot actually in the series you did on OJ yeah, because it's split up into a bunch of different parts and you can almost see that you have sort of evolving relationships with some of those, what you think about some of the characters in the OJ book. I don't know, I guess, as you read different books and are exposed to different things. So I'm curious, like, how do you sort of monitor your personal connections to the things that you're writing about? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's such a thing as empathizing too much with somebody who did something terrible, because I think that makes one less prone to doing something terrible. You know, that's why empathy is different from admiration. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think with OJ Simpson, I mean, yeah, you can really hear me flip-flopping in real time on that one. And I think because of the way that my own understanding of, of times when I have done things that I regret works, I, I don't know. I think I do this, this weird thing also where like, if someone is like, I didn't do it, which is what OJ Simpson consistently says, I'm like, okay, well, Maybe you believe you didn't do it. How would that work? What would that involve? And that involved me being like, okay, well, like, perhaps it wasn't a premeditated thing. And then in, I think, the subsequent episode, I'm like, no, Sarah, he was wearing gloves, gloves in June in Brentwood. No, this is premeditation. Gloves, Sarah. (laughs) And and I think that um, that's me kind of 
seeing what happens if you start from the position of saying like, I want to believe in some way what you're self-reporting or like see what happens if we start off with that and then let it get whittled down by what, what emerges. One of those things being that you were wearing gloves. I think I like it. Well, it's nice because there's two hosts, right? So Mm -hmm. everyone's like kind of ethically calibrating themselves individually. Yeah. And something I like to do is to be like, would I come to the same conclusion that Sarah and Michael Hobbs came to independently? Like, do I have the ability to sort of discern these ethical questions on my own? But, But you don't get to do that very often because mostly we sort of like, take our perceptions of these people from the media. Mm -hmm. One thing I have been sort of curious about is like, as a person who's sort of criticizing the media of the nineties and OOs, like how do you feel like your work is received by the people who are creating the 2022 narratives that will be part of the 2040s you're wrong about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm one of those people. And so it is, you know, I am receiving it with with humility and trepidation, I guess, because I do feel like to speak publicly about anything is to fuck it up to some extent. And that's just it's part of it. Um, And so and I think that the process of doing the show has uh, has taught me that because it's easy to have clean hands when you haven't been at the factory. (laughs) Your podcast is like well known enough to have its own subreddit and its own super fans. Mm-hmm. Like, has it been difficult to be a person who's sort of espousing these opinions who who becomes, let's say, a micro celebrity around them and people are unhappy about like what you thought about this or, you know, as you said, like the only, the only thing to do is to do it wrong. Someone's going to think you're doing it wrong. Yes. Uh, what has that experience been like? I mean, it's like both miraculous and stressful. Um, <laughs> right. And I think um, one of the things that makes me really happy is feeling like I have done this sort of modern day witchcraft thing where I shouted into a bunch of jars and then mailed them around the world. And then people were able to open them in their own homes and have something to experience. And I love it when people tell me, and people mention this pretty regularly that like listening to the way I talk about these people in the stories that we tell and just about the world generally has made them practice empathy more um, because that is, and I almost feel like I have preserved this a little bit past version of myself because I think I've been on this journey throughout the pandemic of becoming pretty cynical and then deciding cynicism is a luxury and that like it feels better ultimately to try to believe in people even when your ability to do that is being assaulted from all sides um, in the news every day. And so I feel like I can also access this person that I used to, I used to just be, I think a lot braver in the kind of radical ways that I was willing to believe in human beings. And I, I don't think that I stopped doing that because I got smarter. I think I stopped doing that because I got tired and kind of depressed. Um, And I want to, you know, not be that person again, because um, the river keeps flowing. But uh, just to to remember that that was like, 
that was that was this kind of like daredevilry that I was doing and that that still exists for people to connect with and for me to reconnect with. Um, and then I think that there's a higher level of accountability. I can't be as petty as I used to be. I can't be petty on Twitter anymore. I've had people be like, I would have thought that you would have been empathetic with this situation. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In some ways, um, it feels to me like you really like found your format with doing these stories in this show. But you also said earlier that like anything you do like enough becomes a job mm. and, and feels like a job. And you did you've done a lot of episodes over a pretty uh, pretty tight amount of time. I guess how does the like seventy fifth show compare to the like fourth show in terms of sort of like your relationship to it mm -hmm. and and sort of bringing that it's not like the kind of thing that you can like you're actually having to like put yourself out there each time i mean the evolution has been interesting i think that the one that just came out is probably like 135 or something in around there and so the evolution of doing the show with mike was kind of like we're doing a show Oh, that was fun. Let's do that more. Oh, oh, people are listening to it. Oh, oh, more people are listening to it. And then feeling at some point, like you kind of know what you're doing. Like, you know, not that like it's easy for you, but that it's like inventing a new kind of sandwich. And then you kind of figure out what goes in the sandwich after the first 30 tries. And then you keep making the sandwich. Now you're speaking my language. <laughs> it all comes back to sandwiches. Yeah. And then with Mike's departure, it's now like, well, we're not, it's, we have to have a new sandwich and maybe it's more of a hot dog. Um, <laughs> or, and then we have the, is a hot dog, a sandwich a debate. So that could get distracting. But so I think that there's something that I appreciate about the process that I'm experiencing right now is that the show kind of is simultaneously like pretty established and there's all these areas where I feel like I have those hours of practice under my belt and I figured out kind of how this works and that works. And yet it's also a, a brand new baby in other ways. And I get to go through that process again, which is really nice because the first time it's happening to you, you're screaming the whole time. Just like when I wrote space mountain, you know, people who write for a magazine, you know, you, you submit and they send you a check and they publish your work. And, um, what you're doing is more like running a small business, mm. you know, where it's like, um, even if I don't want to do this, like, you know, paying, paying my rent doing this, you know, people have, it's people have, um, financial, uh, relationship to it. And, um, 
it's probably not easy to build an audience of this size again. So right. you know, what does that something like that look like for you? Like the fact that um, this is both like a creative outlet and a, a business for you? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it is. It's like being married, I imagine, or something like that. Or actually to relate this to your show, like I... I don't listen consistently to this podcast, but I go through like jags of listening to it for like many hours each day for days. Um, And so when I was preparing to talk to you today, I was like, this is really funny when I think about like the summer of 2019 when I was dog sitting and had to walk this giant pit bull for like hours every day to try and tire her out. And I was like, well, I think this is like a three long form walk and I would like (laughs) walk around. Yeah. I mean, or maybe like, maybe that's excessive. These are long episodes, like a three or four long form day for sure. Um, And so I feel about the show, like first and foremost, like the people need to walk their dogs, you know, and like, and if I can't get an episode out when it's due out every two weeks, then like, it's, I mean, to, to have been around this long and through the pandemic, like, I feel a sense of responsibility about it being, like, giving people something where you just, you feel that sense of relief that you do with something, or at least that I do with, with an episodic, a podcast or a show where, like, the theme music kicks in and you relax a little bit because you're like, I know I'm going to be entertained for, like, the next 45 minutes or however long it is. I know that I can be distracted from whatever I'm trying to distract myself from. And then I think the other function of that is that I like, I have to be more thoughtful about how to keep its longevity going because if I burn out on it and just don't want to do it anymore, if I'm continuing doing it in a format um, that is unsustainable for me, which is part of why I'm, you know, currently in a format where I, for every like three guests that explain something to me, I'll explain something to somebody, but where it's not an even half and half of someone telling me something and then me explaining something. Cause I don't have that much uh, in me right now. I don't, I guess I used everything I knew <laughs> in those first uh, hundred and some episodes. And so I think it's keeping me honest in terms of making me, grow the show into something that I continue to feel excited about. What was the most surprising episode you've, you've done? Like what was the one where you went into Hmm. it thinking it would be one way and it it went completely different. I mean, I was very surprised by how the OJ Simpson series swelled up because I really had this plan to do the entire trial in 10 episodes. And then I was just like, actually, and just kept getting, (laughs) getting stuck. Where, where are we in the OJ saga right now? I'm not sure I'm totally up to yeah. date. I've heard the DeLorean episode. We just got past the grand jury hearings. And so we're at the preliminary hearings, which are, is like the beginning, the like first tremors of the trial itself beginning. So that's the, the Tristram Shandy story structure happening there. And the, I will continue the OJ episodes, um, but it will be a little while. That's my announcement about that. <laughs> what what happens when you drill down like further like past the like single episode into the like the multi-part where it's like each of these things that would be like I don't know in a side in a normal episode are like an entire episode what, what have you found out about the ultra magnifying glass version of, of telling stories 
I mean, I really like it. I think I figured out it's kind of like a fractal where like each time you zoom, there's a full size story in the zoom and you can just keep going. And like, I think one of the things I think a lot about narrative as it gets um, as it's in the past, at least typically been presented when we take a real life story and make it into a TV movie or, or an Oscar grab or whatever is that things will get standardized into kind of, you know, this is what we know audiences are capable of digesting. Um, and I just love reveling in a story and all its digressive weirdness and then seeing people being like, I loved the part when you talk about Cato Kalin's job as a waiter where he told jokes while he was waiting tables. <laughs> because, the, you know, all this stuff that is supposed to be, you know, something that an audience would just sort of like spit out if you gave it to them. I like to prove that they like it. <laughs> I think that there's a way that Wikipedia has sort of trained our oh, brain yeah. that way where it's like, no, you can drill down on anything. Right. Like any, anything that is in a sufficiently like covered story, there's like a, there, there's that fractal where you, you, you zoom in, in on any element. And I like it too. Like I like, like there's a sort of a trope I feel like about like true crime right now, mm. which is like, oh, you should cover the victims. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't like give press to the thing. And I'm like, eh. I don't know about that, but I like I like to cover the randos. Yes. Like I like a lot of Cato detail. Oh my God, I want yeah. everyone in LA, I want a full like Wikipedia drill down into their character. Right. And like what restaurant was the woman who saw OJ in his car trying to get to? And what did they have? I think it was actually a grocery store that had a salad bar in it. Um, and that people were, were very sad when it closed. Yeah, I agree about Wikipedia. And that makes me think about like... Yeah, some of the most enjoyable reading I've done in the past 10 years has been when it's, you know, it's like eight o'clock, I've got kind of an empty evening ahead of me. And I'm like, time to read all the creepy Wikipedia pages I can find, and then be too afraid to turn off the light when I go to sleep. Okay, one more question for you. Okay. So like, looking back from where you started, uh, where you were uh, in the uh, in the inaugural class of the uh, Portland State MFA Fiction Program, to now, which is not that many years, um, it really feels to me like you you found your format. And I don't mean that mm-hmm. this is like the only thing you can do in your life, but like you're really good at this format. Like it it, it suits the way you work. Thank you. What would you say to someone who who wants to do creative work like this but mm. hasn't found? their format how did you find your format yeah I mean it's funny I had I tried to start a podcast a couple times previously I mean I actually had a different podcast before this that I ran um for like for over a year with my friend Candace and we had a great time doing it we talked about a different book every month and it was just the thing we did on the side and that was definitely practice for it and you know probably uh I don't know how many people listened to it but not that many and that was never our plan to get it to be big or anything. Um, And I think, I don't know, I think what I've enjoyed about the past 10 years is that I knew that I loved writing and then writing took me into loving the process of researching and writing nonfiction. And then doing podcasts allowed me to do some of the things that I loved most about that. And so I think like two pieces of career advice that I I do feel like I'm qualified to give are that like industries will appear that don't exist when you're first learning how to do the art form that is your, your first calling. And 
And also that you might move from love to love for a while until something kind of gels. You know, you might do something you really love and then find something new that allows you to do the things you most loved about the first thing. And that'll translate to a third thing. And yeah, it's, and also, you know, it helps to be extremely, extremely lucky. <laughs> it helps to start with a great listicle. Oh God. Yeah. Do some listicles. They're fun. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for this interview. <laughs> thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Hey, uh, this has been the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Sarah Marshall. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to Seth Kelly, who edited this episode, and Noelle Matier, who is our intern. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media who help us produce this show. We'll be back next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.